0: And welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic Global Crisis Catholic Solution. This June 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Dr. Garrick is an economist and is taught at an undergraduate and postgraduate level in property finance, property political economy and property development. His PhD thesis was titled An Aristotelian Construction of the Social Economy of Land.
1: Thank you very much. What um, I want to do is relate our our current um, economic situation to um, the Pope's most recent encyclical, Caritas and Veritatis. Now, a lot of people probably don't want to read something as old and as complicated and stuffy as a paper encyclical. But I really do recommend the encyclicals, um, especially this one, uh, for reading, preferably not in a hurry. Um, I think I've read this now three or four times. And uh, each time, you kind of slow down a bit and. Um, It's sort of more and more delightful. The reason I think it's really important, especially this one, is there's a whole series of encyclicals, uh, starting with Rerum Novarum, a bit over 100 years ago. And little by little, what they've been building up is a response to the world's social
2: problems, mostly in pace with um,
1: the particular needs of the time, but really, kind of developing a, a, a fuller picture as they have—I um, I don't like to use the word "evolve," but uh, as the tradition of the, um, of, the paper, of the social encyclicals has has developed. And this last one, I—I uh, I, I first read it um, because I thought I had to, and I found that the, the, the more I got into it, the more excited I got about it because it was kind of a uh, like a summary of just about everything that came come before but also it puts it together I think in a delightful whole, um, what I would say is a theory of uh, humanity's kind of social role and it brings out a few ideas and this is probably why it appeals to me especially is that it brings out a few ideas that we don't often see really stressed when we talk about economics. There are actually ideas that have been in the social encyclicals for a long time, but I think Pope Benedict has done a fantastic job of actually kind of bringing them to the fore. One or two things that I would have liked, to have, to have liked him to have been a little bit more explicit about, and for some reason, scholars always seem to like to be critical and, and say something bad about social encyclicals. And, and when I say that there are a couple of things that aren't in there, I'm, I'm really not trying to continue that tradition, because this to me is an absolute gem. Um, there are one or two things which I think are still waiting to be said. But what it has is, is absolutely fantastic. It takes us back to a view of humanity, which I think is, is nicely um, spelled out in a way which is more complete, more accessible than what you find with the late Holy Father. Now, I'm a great fa- fa- fan of, of JP too. Uh, and I love the way that he kind of drilled into the world, the, the importance of of an understanding of the human person in the solution of, of many of the questions of our time. And when he applied it to the social question, the question of economics and so on, he talked about anthropology. how had to get the right anthropology, and he was talking about how important it was to have this theory of what it is to be human in order to solve whichever problem you're looking at. Our present holy father has, has taken that and made it a little bit more personal. You know, to talk about an anthropology is, is great if you you know are a scholar and you know, all that sort of stuff, and you can understand J.B. too, that's fantastic. Whereas I, I think Pope Benedict is able to bring that down into words which are, are far more meaningful for the average person. And what does he mean by an anthropology? He's getting us to look at what it is to be human, what we want as people. Now, that's not what Catholics want or what Christians want or what this person wants or, or whatever It is what people want. And the thing which I find absolutely lovely about the whole social tradition, it brings out the way that Catholic thought is about humanity. I think it's almost the ultimate humanism, because we're looking at what it is to be human. And we have an insight into what it is to be human, which goes a little bit further than what many other people that are trying to do the same thing, but without the advantage of Christianity. Why is Christianity an advantage? Because we have, fortunately, the opportunity to have a communication revelation from you know, the maker of humanity, sort of the, the the God who made us, who understands what humanity is. And even more than that, and I think this is something that comes out in Caracardus and Veritati quite well the way that we're made in the image and likeness of God. And the way that if we relate to each other, the way that the person of the Blessed Trinity will relate to each other, then we're being more human because that's the way that we're actually made to to relate anyway. Okay? Humans are meant to get along with each other in the same way that Father, Son and Holy Spirit get along in the um, in the Trinity. Now as Mentioned to a couple of people before we started that I was actually hoping to be here a fair bit earlier this evening, but I spent the last 15-20 minutes or so fighting with my computer trying to get my printer to work. And so all of these quotes that I've taken out of the encyclical are now sitting, hiding inside my computer, and so I'm not going to be able to go to them nearly as quickly. I would very much like to find some of them. I wanted to start by looking at what Pope Benedict um, tells us about where we get our understanding of, 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 of what we are. Just read a little bit. It's not the best part of it, but it gives you an idea. To recognise the divine image in the other, thus truly coming to discover him, discovering him or her, and to mature in love, that uh, that becomes concern and care for the other. To to really sort of see uh, the divine. Now, we've seen that in uh, examples like um, uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, when she cares for people. But to apply that to our economic relationships sort of takes that to an extra level. There's a a far better quote in here. Mm. I'm not going to be able to use that. used this kind of diagram before. The like Father, Son called Logos, and the Spirit, Father, Son, Christ, and the Spirit. The relationships in the Trinity are relationships of giving and of gift. And in the encyclical, uh, the importance of gift kind of comes out. And this is something that I first came across a long time ago in a book called, uh, a book by Lester K. Little, Poverty and the Profit Economy. And in that book, um, this chap, Lester K. Little, I don't think was a Catholic, focused on the way that in history there have been two types of economies that you find. One is a gift economy, which you tend to find in simpler communities. Indigenous people, medieval um, Europe. Uh, and you still find it in some cultures. I find it delightful when I visit people. Um, definitely sort of not Aussie kind of orientation with, you know, Maltese and Lebanese are terrific at this. You know, you go to someone's place and you can't get out with being, without being fed. you know, got a lot of time giving you stuff. Yeah. And that is really fantastic. It comes from an idea that relationship is all about giving. And in giving, if everyone is giving to everyone else, basically, everyone will kind of be looked after. It's not an idea of contract. And that notion of contract is far more what contemporary Western culture is about, especially in English tradition, where you get what you pay for, and everything has a price. And sure enough, we look after each other. And it's based on this idea that if we all buy things for the right price, then we'll get what we need. Okay? So there's one idea is you, know, you give away everything. And by giving away stuff to all of your friends, you, you actually end up with everyone being looked after. The other one is that by getting everything that you need and everyone looking after themselves, which is like Adam Smith, you will get what you need. So both of them ultimately have as their object getting what you need. But they do it entirely different ways. One is by giving stuff away, and the other one is by obtaining stuff by contract. And Lester K. Little's idea was that you see this transition in the development in Europe of culture, where you go from what's called a gift economy to a a contract economy, an economy that's kind of based on on buying and selling. They've both got the same object. But when we look at what happens in the Trinity, the Father loves the Son infinitely and completely. What that means is that the Father is always wanting the Son's happiness and completeness. And so there's a giving that goes on in the Trinity. The Father, as the omnipotent creator, in a kind of loose sense... The origin of everything, the Son was begotten by the Father, so in a kind of sense, not in time, Um, the the Father, it could be very delicate here, doesn't actually pre-exist, but God the Son comes from the Father as the first act. But the Father, being the source of all, but loving infinitely, is always giving totally to the Son. But likewise, the Son is totally devoted to the Father and is always giving, in a sense, receptively to the Father. So there's like a, like a, a, a reciprocity of love in the Trinity. And that nature of love, you know, God is love. That's the first of um, Pope Benedict's. Encyclicals, which sounds a little bit quaint, especially when you've been fighting the liberals for sort of twenty years or something, uh, and, and someone comes along and says, "You know, God is love." Oh, okay, but when you, you look at what he's saying, it's absolutely true. God is love and God is truth, and that's a, the primary dynamic. And you find that Pope Benedict has taken that idea into his social encyclicals. So you've got God is love. How does that affect your um, your economy? Now, in the Trinity, there's a third dimension to this. God the Father is always giving, totally giving, and absolutely and infinitely giving, so he keeps nothing for himself, which provides you with what I think is a peculiar situation, in that he's omnipotent and has everything, but is simultaneously infinitely giving himself away. And that's something like, I think, what a human father is meant to do in a family in that you might go out and work and you might have build up a business or whatever you're doing, but what are you doing it for? Not to keep anything for yourself, but to support your family and to really do God's will in the community one way or another. And so a human father models God the father in being productive, but also being infinitely giving, or at least as far as a human person can give. The Trinity at the other end, or at the other side of this relationship, is the receptive love of, of Christ. You see that in the relationship between Jesus and the Father in the Gospels. There's no place where Jesus holds back. He accepts the love of the Father, but he also accepts the Father's will. And so there's this receptive confidence, even if it means his own sort of torture and death, which we have, you know, in the event of um, the uh, the agony of the garden, this acceptance, this receptive love, this total confidence, even though it might mean hardship. You see exactly the same thing with the Blessed Virgin, when she says, you know, let it be done unto me according to your word. She's saying, let it be done unto me. I'm receiving, I'm accepting the love of God. Your will be done, not mine. And so this is receptive, receptive love. And from that comes the, the Holy Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son, their relationship of love. Now, if that's the model for relationship with
0: God, You are listening to Dr. Garrick Small, discussing the topic Global Crisis Catholic Solution for Lumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au
1: If you can see that this is the relationship that comes down to all humanity, we're down here somewhere. We well, then start to, well, we can apply it to the family. And lots of people have done that. And it's certainly very evident in the family. But how does it affect our social relations when we deal with people that are further away Uh, than the family. And I often tell my students, you know, you live in two worlds, two economies in a sense. You live in a gift economy and you live in a contract economy. When you wake up in the morning and go down for breakfast, you're in a gift economy. You know, mum says, oh, how are you, dear? You know, um, here's your breakfast. She doesn't say, how are you, dear? Where's your credit card? There is gift. And likewise kind of after dinner in the evening she's probably gonna get you to do the chores and all that sort of stuff, and that's kind of your opportunity to give back to your family. And that's the stuff that I think sort of kids have a lot of difficulty with. But if you're kind of socialized in into sort of appreciating them, it's a gift of love every time you do your chores. Yeah? And so the family is, is is a lovely example of this gift economy. But then you go out the door. Okay? And then you sort of go down and it's a doggy dog you know, kind of world and all that sort of stuff, and people try and rip off and all that sort of thing. And there's a different world. Yeah? What Pope Benedict is saying is that have got the family as a really good example of this. Where does the economy come in? And that's our question. Is it completely separate from all of this stuff? When Aristotle looked at the question of economics, and he gave economics its name... The name he gave our study of of people getting along with each other commercially was oikonomiki, which roughly translated means household management. And so what was Aristotle doing? He was saying, if I don't understand how to get along with each other and in fact organise the national economy, I look at the household, the family, as my example. Aristotle didn't have the advantage of Christianity, so he didn't understand that he had to imitate the, the, the Trinity. He said, you have to imitate the family. And he developed his economic thinking of the family. Well, we can sort of cut through a little bit and say, well, we should be doing that. And that's exactly what our Holy Father has done in uh, Caritas and Veritati. He so said, go to the Trinity. And I find that really exciting because that whole notion, um, that 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 whole kind of structure there comes, I think, um, pretty transparently from an obscure fellow uh, called Saint Bonaventure, who I'm particularly fond of. And uh, the Holy Father is, is there, kind of, you know, coming in on my favourite saint. So I'm thinking this is really good. So where does this take us into the economy? What it means is that we have to have a capacity and interest in gift. And we start talking about sort of things like this. We have to organise our economy like, you can't do that. But in fact, it doesn't mean giving to the point where you're completely, you know, nothing,
2: which kind of looks like maybe what someone could take in this
1: diagram of the Trinity if you sort of take it too far. The Father is giving himself away infinitely. How much is left if you give yourself away infinitely? Right? Huh? It's not very much. Yeah. One of my other heroes is St. Francis. I mean, he tried as hard as he could to do that. Uh, and uh, I think for very good purpose. But there's a trick here. When the Father does it, God the Father, He gives Himself away infinitely. But the trick is that He also has infinite resources to give away. And so if you take infinity away from infinity, you're still left with infinity. You know, this is one of the weird things about sort of the way that, that particular number works, right? So he gives himself away infin- infinitely. He keeps himself from nothing. But in fact, he's still got all of his infinity of stuff there anyway, because of the way infinity works. So you can never actually um, it, it, you know, exhaust his, his infinite riches. So we can't exactly do that. It's not God. But it means that you have to have the spirit. In the same way that we have to have at least the spirit of the evangelical councils of um, you know, chastity, poverty, and obedience, regardless of what our our, our role is in, in life, doesn't mean that we have to practice it depending on our calling in life in exactly the same way in all cases. We have to understand what the spirit of it means for us. What's the spirit of this kind of giving? It means we have to have an idea of our connection to others. and There are two words that, um, again, we find all through the encyclical <coughs> Most important is solidarity. Now, in our trinity, we've got solidarity. We've got three persons who will the good of the others. And in that way, bring themselves closer and closer together all the time. So close, they're kind of indistinguishable at one level, and that's part of the mystery of the Trinity. That's solidarity. Again, that's infant solidarity. What does solidarity mean on the ground? We can look at the human family. I guess is probably the best example of that. When a human father um, goes out to work and then sort of puts his paycheck into, you know, sort of the groceries or, or whatever he does. Does that mean he starves to death? No. It means that he maintains kind of life and living and and all the rest of it. Otherwise it'd be a little bit silly. But what he wants is an ordered development for the family. Doesn't mean he's going to, as I say, sort of work himself to death. And the same thing, you know, with mum. And so in the family, what we see this worked out with an idea of order. We've got gift, we've got ultimately a certain amount of self. Now when I start talking like that to people in other contexts, all of a sudden, oh, that's kind of nice, but you can never actually do that in public in, in, in practice. It means not complete self destructive giving, but giving within order. Now, what do we mean there? It means that if we have an idea of what our society is going to look like, we end up with an idea that, first of all, all humans have a level of dignity, a level of right. We all have a right to life. We all have dignity as persons, regardless of where we are in terms of our intellect, our um achievements, our um, you know health perhaps, uh, and all these things. Our, our base level is that we're all human. And so we all have a right to participate in the material benefits, which is what we're looking at in the economy. Um, base level based on human dignity, which means that there's a basic dignity For everyone. Common. But then, there's also respect. And I'll call it place. I don't know if it's a... By place, I mean the role that one plays in the community. This is sort of really important. If you're in the position of taking um, a a role in a community that requires greater education, greater risk, greater responsibility, Uh, maybe where your decisions uh, have an influence on a greater number of people and their welfare, say as an architect or a politician or an engineer. While you have the basic dignity complement to all, you have to have some way of recognizing, or recognizing um, those more dignified positions in terms of the role that they they, they, they take in the um, you know the order of society, the the, the, the ultimate um, uh, success of society in, in an economic sense. And so you've got these these two ideas. Now those two ideas are difficult because they appear to pull in different directions. If you go too far in this direction, you end up with socialism. If you go too far in this direction, especially if you misunderstand what place means, then you end up with radical capitalism. Uh, I have lots of students I who used to teach a, um, uh, a business degree. And people think, well, I'm going to be successful. And what does successful mean? Well, successful means make my money. Okay, as a business person, do you know anything about the business you're working in? Not exactly, but I can make a lot of money out of it. Right? You might be built, you know, baking bread or brewing beer or developing skyscrapers or what have you. Right? I tend to think that skyscrapers get built by engineers and people in gumboots and uh, you know architects and stuff like that. Right? Whereas my students sort of think that the architects of skyscrapers get built by people taking risks and buying real estate for the right price and tying in a builder at that price and some professional fees at that price. Right? And they actually don't do anything at all in, in terms of you know, putting the mirror, or the windows in or, or, or laying the concrete. You get the idea? At what point, do my students have a place in this kind of world? Right? Now, I think they do have a place. I don't want to undersell them. But on the other hand, all those other people have a place as well. Yeah? And so, this notion of place is really, really important. It means a, a certain amount of self respect. In the same way that you find um, that in a family, um, you know, kids, oh, I've got a um, few boys, and, and it's kind of delightful as they grow up because I, I never expected this. I guess you guys have got children. The way that um, kids are really proud of their fathers. And it's kind of a bit scary. I mean, I'm finding it sort of a bit scary on occasions, but you think, oh, I hope I can live up to. you yeah. know, Because they want to have somebody that they can be proud of. You find it in Indigenous peoples. They like to be proud of their chief. They like their chief to have a motor car, or if nobody else on the island has a motor car, or to have sent their kids, like the chief's kids, to, to university. Right? Because to them... It's a way of showing the respect for place that the chief, and in some cases the medicine person, uh, you know, has as well. This idea that it's it's, it's correct. There's something kind of very um, appropriate in a functional society where you respect or you reward people materially, partly on the basis of their place in society, their role. So they've got these two ideas, and they appear to be pulling in opposite directions. But it's not a matter of this one or that one. It's a matter of and. One of St Bonaventure's key ideas is that that he saw Christ especially, but the key to, to all understanding, especially in theology, as being understanding God as the coincidence of opposites. And I think a correct understanding of theology always comes from seeing the truth lies when you have apparently contradictory ideas connected with an and rather than an all. You see, God is mercy and his justice, they appear to be contradictory. God is both, not one or the other. And if you go down one path or the other, you end up with heresy, and the same thing here. OK, so how does that apply? We probably even maybe put tribes in here as almost an intermediary. Because I think you can learn a lot from tribal organisations. Because tribal organisations tend to be fairly evidently modelled on the family. And again, you can apply the way that tribes work, I think, a lot easier uh, to an economy. And, and one of the places I find that's really useful to do this is when people come along and say, oh, you can't do that. You, you can't you know, get people to, to, to uh, think about a gift economy. Say, so, yeah, that's all right except that in most places where you have a tribal mentality, you do have some element of gift economy happening. Okay, Where am I going to with this? What I want to get to is about this notion of gift. Gift means the people with the power, economic power, to take more than their share, give, I think it's justice, but give gratuitously the resources to those that don't have the power as a gift. It's actually an obligation of justice. But you see, if I live in a world where I've got the power and you don't,
0: You are listening to Dr. Garrick Small discussing the topic Global Crisis, Catholic Solution volumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au To give
1: you what is justly yours actually is a gift on my part. Does that make sense? If I'm there with my pirate mates and we've got all the guns, right? And you're the, the peasants that we're kind of, you know, used to subjugating, I might be treating you like a slave. That's unjust. But hey, that's the way the world always works. For me to treat you with human dignity, even though it's justly yours, is in fact a gift. Because I don't have to do it. you say, oh, hang on, hang on. You know, I'm being treated unjustly. You know, I deserve it, you know, injustice. You do. But the mentality from here is that I need to be motivated to to do that even though I don't have to. Even though I might live in a world which doesn't force me to. This notion of gift I think is really important. And I think uh, Pope Benedict is bringing out the idea of gift um, explicitly in his document partly because giving people justice is so far out of our cultural mindset that we've largely forgotten it. So Bonaventure used to say that it's Hard to treat a person justly if you don't first love them. Now that was 800 years ago, but I think we're still seeing that kind of mentality today. We've forgotten what it is to treat someone justly, and so we can only really access it through this conscious willing of a gift. You know? Now, to a certain extent, you can see this in business. If Let's say you come into my shop and I'm going to sell you something. I might have the, I don't know, Holden dealership and you might really want to hold them. You know? And you might have to go a long way to go and get another one. And the other Holden deal, which might be in the next town, might be sort of an hour's drive away, might be going to treat you the same way that I'm going to treat you anyway. And so I can give you the deal that I'm going to give you. Right? That doesn't mean I'm forced to charge a top dollar for my holding or BMW or whatever it is. <laughs> I could sell it to you for a reasonable price and make a reasonable profit, not an over-the-top profit, but I could do that. I have the freedom to do that. No one is forcing anyone in business to squeeze the last little drop of profit out of, you know, They're customers, they have the power to, they don't have to. The idea of treating, you know, selling you the Holden for a reasonable price is an example of me almost giving you a gift. Now, am I giving you the the Holden for nothing? No, I might give it to you for, for the right kind of price to be able to, you know, replace my stock, pay for all my costs, make a nice income for myself, and in fact, make an income sufficient to enable me to live, you know, in a nicer house than my employees, because of my place you know, in running a cold dealership. You know, there's a whole lot of cash that I've put into the business. I'm taking risk. You might want to buy my car. You might go and buy a Toyota or something like that. Yeah. So there's risks. Yeah. Um. So I deserve a reasonable income. But that doesn't give me, if you like, the right to really kind of bleed you, you know, to that end degree. Now, the old way of expressing this idea was an idea that came from uh, St Thomas Aquinas. Probably one of the best examples is the idea of the just price, and this is really one of the key. Ideas. I'm going to put some of these away because we'll move away from these ideas now. What I want to do is move into the principles that we get from this kind of fundamental, this this this, this foundation of our thinking. First one is the notion of the judge price. The judge price is where I have the power to charge you. More for something than maybe I need to in order to make a reasonable profit. I can look at that, illustrate it with a couple of little boxes. If this is how much you're prepared, let's say the pay for the holding, let's say it's oh, nice $50,000. Maybe it's not a really nice holding, but we'll just say $100,000 maybe with all the turbo stuff on it. But over here, that's what you're willing to pay, Uh, buyer. But when I look at my position, I'm running my business, and I might have to to buy the Holden's from from you know the manufacturer from GMH. It might cost me that much. I might have to pay a certain amount of electricity and rent on my premises and that sort of stuff. Might be that much. Might have to pay my employees to, you know, wash the the yard and answer the phone and that sort of stuff. That might, it might be this much, and then I might um, have to take some income for myself and cover my own wrist. and maybe the interest I pay. Oh, my I borrow money and that sort of stuff right? it comes up to here. Maybe that's forty. Yeah. Okay. in our world. If I was to sell you
2: the car for, let's say, forty-five, you'd say, "Hey, that's fantastic! I was willing to pay fifty,
1: and I got it for forty-five. I'm in front." Okay. But what happens here? Very, very simply, I could earn a reasonable income and get all my returns kind of covered if I sold, if you, if I um, sold the car to you for that. but Then there's this five thousand dollars in here that I
2: have the power.
1: To charge you, and in fact you even think you've got a $5,000 discount because so you're willing to pay $50,000, right? but in fact I don't need to in order to cover all of my business expenses and that is the problem because that extra 5000 I don't need to charge you on another day we could show you, I don't even have a right in justice to charge you it just happens that in our culture we do We're going to come back to that idea of, of, of this amount here, and we'll, we'll just leave it as, as $5,000 and we'll just say that's, that's that amount. Now, yeah. what happens when you have that kind of a, a process kind of happening? We'll just stay with the just price. If I run my business, let's say my business is a listed company on the Australian Stock Exchange, and when it was listed, it was on the assumption or on the expectation that in most cases, I was only going to be able to sell cars for the 40,000. What it means is that now my income is, is for every car that I sell, sort of more than I need. And the peculiar thing happens Happens to me, happens to everyone who owns shares in my company. And you can sort of see this with, you um, can uh, do it graphically. This is my, uh, it was the, my income going up. My
2: income.
1: I don't know any income, i sort of. Okay, not so good. If I earn a modest income, most people tend to spend it all. Don't they? Yeah. If I earn, let's say in Australia, $10,000 a year, I'm probably going to spend it all. Yeah. If I earn $20,000 a year, I'm probably going to spend it all. If I've got a family and I'm earning fifty or $60,000 a year, I'm going to spend it all. Yeah. And that's what it tends to happen. Right. And so this is all consumption. It gets to a point, though, where as my income increases, the extra income that I earn, I might consider a bit more. But I've already got my really nice house and my really nice car and maybe a couple of weekenders or something. But then I find, well, okay, then I've actually spent as much as I can. It, I'm living good food. I have grain Grange Hermitage kind of wine every night of the, of the week. And all the rest of it. You know, not so much of that stuff I can drink. What am I going to do after I spend all the money on consumption that I feel inclined to? I'm going to do the rest of it. I'm going to invest it. And you know, okay, that's nice. That's what we do. That's what our culture tells us to do. That's what it's important to, to do. In some ways, I'll be buying shares in companies that are making profits like that, or by buying real estate. Now, come back and look at what happens to that investment money. Let's look at what happens as this goes out. I think the consumption graph kind of tends to flatten off a bit as you go up in. What happens is, as your in- income increases, your extra income that you don't consume kind of increases as a percentage of your. Income right? partly sort of comes from the fact that we have lost contact with uh, that idea of reward for um, for place because now we simply get these big rewards, these big numbers, and it actually isn't translated into quality of life. It's, it's just translated into, into investment. This investment we're all kind of encouraged to do. Over the last twenty years, most people in Australia, certainly people are sort of comfortable incomes have all been encouraged to you know invest in real estate. You notice that? Certainly since the early 90s. You know every second person you meet has got an investment property somewhere. Now I find that a little bit creepy, especially being particularly interested in real estate, because what it means is that everyone who's got an investment property owns not only their own house but owns the house that somebody else is living in. If half the people in Australia owned an investment property it means that the other half would never live in their own home. Kind of important to kind of keep that. You know, If people in Australia sort of average earning two investment properties, it means that something like two thirds of the people in Australia won't live in their own home. Turns out of the people that own investment properties, the average number, if you own an investment property at all, and you sort of get together with all the other people who own investment properties, the average number of investment properties that people own is eight. So if you own one or two, or your mum or dad do, or, or what have you, you're actually in sort of little league compared to the average. The average is, is eight, And that means that there's something like a 1 to 8 or an 8 to 1 ratio between the number of houses or, you know, the number of people who own their own home compared to the number of people that are depending on others. And if I own a house I don't live in, my rent there, you know, is likely to be in this kind of area. It's, it's likely to be income that I don't probably nearly need. Okay. What happens to that? In the whole economy, a very peculiar thing happens. It has to do with the cycle of production and consumption. i got production here. Now I'm producing motor cars or something we're talking about over here. And let's say that at one part of the production cycle, um, you know, in Australia, let's say a month or a year. That's why we reproduce. Let's say, well, let's think of a number, 100 billion, 100 billion, 1,000, doesn't matter, just a number of, of things, okay? of motor cars, of cans of beer, of globes of bread, and all that sort of thing. Yeah? We do that over one production cycle. Now, the next production cycle, we'll need all of those to be sold, won't we? Who's going to buy them? we're talking about the like the entire Australian economy, and we'll, we'll just work on Australia, okay, or we could work on the globe, but we'll keep working on Australia. What we actually hope is that there's somebody going to come in and buy all those things, and they're going to pay $100 obviously, okay? Now, an insight is that the consumers over here a hundred million dollars worth of money to be able to do that consumption. It's pretty easy. The trick thing that we tend to ignore is that those two groups of people are the same bodies. I go to work one day building or selling motor cars okay, and then I come home and I buy food. You might produce food and go home and buy a motor car. Right? So the cars I produce become the ones that you buy and the food that you produce becomes the, the, the food that I consume, right? Okay. Where do consumers get their money from? From their pay packet. And so the income comes around here, goes to the consumers' pockets, and the consumers go and spend that money and the whole cycle goes around. That's fantastic. Okay? Now let's look at what happens. Look at this stuff here. What it means is that there's a hundred million dollars worth of production here. Let's imagine that somebody takes we'll take 10 That's my excess income because I'm selling the car for a bit more than I need to. Yeah? So in terms of consumption, how much comes around here to be consumed? Because I've taken that 10 out, put it under the bed, or maybe invested in real estate or something. So how much is going to get spent of the hundred billion dollars worth of products that we produce in Australia? How many dollars is available? Only ninety. What's going to happen then? Next time we're thinking about working out how much to produce. We've produced a hundred, we've sold ninety. How much have we got sitting on the on the shelf somewhere? Ten. Now the managers are going to look around and they're going to say, "Okay, then, last production cycle we produced 100 million dollars worth of stuff. We've still got still 10 left over from last time. Obviously, people are only able to buy 90, and so we better back off our production. Easy. So in the next cycle, it's not 100." It becomes 90. Well, in fact, it becomes 80. right? Because we've got 10 billion not sold from last time. We know that people are buying about 90. And so we only need to produce 80, don't we? This is 80 plus 10 gives it to 90. And that's what the community is going to buy. So we go in there. We come around
2: here.
1: And then again... We're talking about people here, the consumers are still going to consume, and uh, let's imagine that we're still going to get more or less the same kind of pattern of saving there from the people that are on income that they don't all spend. Another 10 billion comes out here. How much comes around this way? Now, it's curious here because what you see is that the 90, uh, 100 becomes 90, becomes 80, becomes 70. Yeah. And the production then starts to sort of chase down, um, trying to reduce only as much as as the consumption seems to be able to produce. And what you end up here is that this left on the shelf becomes 20, becomes 30, becomes 40. What's causing all that? It's this. It's that. It's long-term saving. Right? Where does that long-term saving come? It largely comes from that 5000 that I didn't need to sell you. Right? When I sold you the car for $45 instead of 40 I could...
0: You are listening to Dr. Garrick Small discussing the topic Global Crisis, Catholic Solution for Lumen Verum Apologetics on Cradio.org.au
1: at ...the standard of living which is appropriate for my position in society... And charge you forty thousand dollars for the Holden car, you would have been really happy with me because I didn't sell it to you for fifty. Yeah? I didn't even sell it to you for forty-five. You think the fellow's crazy, but I work it out on the basis of what keeps my business going. But here, because of that extra five thousand, that then becomes five thousand, I don't feel inclined to consume, and so you end up with that cycle happening. Now, that's, I think, an easy idea to get across. Yeah? And it comes across because when you come to my car shop, I sell you for 45. You think I'm your mate because I haven't sold you for 50. But in fact, I'm ripping you off because I should have sold you for 40. Yeah? If I had this notion of solidarity and gift, how much would I have sold the car for you to you for? 40.
2: OK.
1: Yeah. I could maybe have sold it to you for thirty five and left out my income and sort of operated as a charity. My business probably eventually would fail. Right? And so I'm not advocating that. All I am saying is charge so that your business hums along quite nicely. You cover your risks, cover your costs, cover your own sort of income needs, but not excessively. And preferably, I've rubbed out my graph over there, spend what you or consume your income, keeping in mind that that sort of um, you your, your your need for consumption is something you need to work out over your whole life. Right? So there's a difference here. When we're talking about doing this investment, I really shouldn't have taken that graph off. Um, we have to think about whole of life. So I might be sort of saving a little bit for my, my superannuation or what have you, and, and that's quite quite reasonable because in my lifetime I will be. Um, You know, consuming all that. But this consumption, which is never spent, becomes a major problem because you end up with this cycle. Now we're getting kind of closer to the real world, and this is sort of thing where losing sight of the importance of gift here, um, you know, hits the ground. Okay, we've got got this cycle. Now, we've got the problem. We've got all of this unconsumed production here. We've got the lack of capacity for our community to to consume. So we've got goods on the shelf. And the Great Depression, I remember when I was first doing economics, it was all about overproduction. The problem in the 1930s was overproduction. You can read that in history
2: books. But...
1: In this diagram here, it's actually overproduction. It looks like overproduction because we're producing away and we're finding that there's stuff being left in our warehouses on the shelves in the shops more and more over time. So you can say it's overproduction. To look at it positively, you can see overproduction. But in fact the problem is under consumption. And it's under consumption. Why? Because someone is saving money they don't need to save. And most of the people that are out there, the, the, the little bodies going out there in motor motorcars and, and cans of beans and the rest of it, are not being paid sufficient wages to be able to live you know, appropriate to their human dignity. So you've got kind of two problems. One is incomes which are higher than they need to be for some people and incomes are lower than they need to be for others. And so those two principles that we're looking at, the respect for human dignity giving you a base level of, of income as one side, and then the other side, the respect for place, you're kind of out of kilter. Okay, There's a short-term solution that you can bring in. And that is, this is kind of rolling up. This this 10 becomes 20, becomes 30, becomes 40. (coughs) Now, what I can do is say, well, I've saved my 10. What I will do, that saving, I will give to some other consumer. And so the consumer then has their wages, uh, this is like the average the average uh, person in the community has got their wages, and then I'll also give them a loan. And so now your consumers, apart from, well, consumers can be broken up into into high income people and low income people. If we equip these consumers now, they've got their wages, plus loan, and maybe their wages have gone down to, uh, to, to your 90, plus a loan of 10. And that's the way to solve this problem. And that's the way we've been solving the problem. Um, actually for a long time but most particularly since about 90, the early 90s, 92, 93 and so what happens here is you, you solve the problem, no longer do we have the problem now, because I save my 10 million my my, my 10, whatever it is my, the, the, the 5 I get from selling it the carpet too much and then what I do is I lend it to somebody who isn't in the comfortable position of having quite the income that I have um, let's put that graph back on I'm, I'm missing my graph I'm up here running my car sales business and earning that 5,000 and maybe I'll do that 100, yeah, let's say 100 times over the year so it becomes an extra $500,000 on time earning. And what I do is I lend it back to people whose income is down here because if their income goes up a bit, they spend it all, don't they? I've solved the problem. So instead of this just simply sitting as a bag of gold under the bed, I'm actually lending it to people so they can consume. All of a sudden, I've got a hundred here, and the problem disappears. I've got a hundred in production, and around here I've got a hundred of the buying power in consumption. Yeah, no problem. And as I say that's something that we've been doing in you know, sort of the last 20 years big time, but really, since the last, since the 1970s, kind of little by little, depending on kind of how you look at the numbers. Now, you see a problem with this, can't you? Yeah. But what we're doing is we're solving this inequity, which has come because of a violation of your just price, it comes from a violation of solidarity and gift, which, to, in, in our Holy Father's terms, okay? Okay that we've kind of redistributed income here, which has given low income people a bit more money because I'm lending it to them and I'm giving myself a destination for my extra investment funds. But eventually those loans have to be paid back with interest. And so when we get to a point where the low income people I'm lending to start to realise that, hey, a big chunk of their pay packet now has to go to paying the interest bill on what they've borrowed. All of a sudden, the 90 that they've got might borrow ten from me, but you know, by the time they maybe sort of have to pay back twenty in interest. Or whatever it is. The equation starts to look the wrong way.
2: Yeah?
1: And so what you find is that where if this process kind of works, what you end up with is, is eventually the uh, appearance of overproduction. what I call this is correctly under-consumption. That's bad. If you solve it by getting people to borrow, you do solve the problem. But when the borrowing stops, all of a sudden you end up with a very accelerated downturn because this process, all of a sudden, Runs aground because the wheels fall off big time because of of, of this income like, because of the um, of, of the repayments because typically what you find is when they stop borrowing you go from this let's say the very instant they stop borrowing one year you've got ninety plus ten hundred no problems the next year you've got ninety no longer plus the ten but let's say I'm just going to put twenty in here just you know. Because if this has been happening to, 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 to for a number of years, 20 years or something, your interest bill is going to kind of creep up here. Then it's suddenly going to start to go there. So you go from 100 to, to 80. Now the numbers are only a bit make-believe, but the process you can see. This situation you appear to solve, uh, to eliminate the problem for quite a number of years, but when the community wakes up and starts borrowing, the adjustment is quite massive. Okay. take If we look at Australia's lending, or, or borrowing, over, you can go back a fair way, you can go back a long way here. Like You've got a wrap like that at the present. The unit this is denominated in is the ratio of um, debt over income for the household. And by that I mean if the household has borrowed $100,000 to buy a house and they're earning $100,000 in household income, that number would be 100%. That's sort of the, the overall debt divided by the overall household income. And there are lots of little complications, that you can have a bit of credit card debt and, da, 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 and all this sort of stuff, right? And the nice thing is that if I owe $100,000 on the house, the bank's not going to come back and sort of take it all out of my income next year. So the fact that it might equal my household income isn't really a problem because I've got 20 years to pay it off. Right? But one way or another, is that number kind of gets Too high, it becomes more and more of a burden on my household income because ultimately uh, I end up with uh, interest costs that come in. If I look historically, I find that certainly back at least as far as 1970, the number was about 30%. You get to about 1992, and then the numbers start to kind of creep up. Reserve banks started to take serious interest when the number, I think, was about mm, close to 100%. I can't remember exactly. But it was in the early 2000s, two, uh, I think about 2002, 2003.
2: They looked at it and they said, At
1: 100%, this number is a bit scary. And people, economists, started to take an interest in it. This is back, you know, eight years ago. I think it was March 2003, I mean, seven years ago. Uh, the, uh, the Reserve Bank uh, in their newsletter drew attention, and first of all, you know, economists started looking at this graph very, very um, seriously. And a lot of them just kind of put aside oh, no, there's lots of ways of, of explaining this away. Some economists said, hey, this is really scary because when that number gets to about 120%, that's the level of household debt that caused the Japanese economy to fall over. And if it gets up to 140%, that's even scarier, because at that level, when the Germans tried it, their economy fell over. And we're kind of getting up there. So that was kind of the the concern back in the early 2000s. That's about 2003. I'll say around Christmas 2002, 2003, say 2003. That number continued to rise up to the point where it got up to, I think it peaked at about um, uh, between 160, and 170. say 160-ish, somewhere. Like that. And that was around 2005. And here we are, you know, 2010. Where are we? It's starting to roll back. And the problem we have today is that, you see, we've been adopting, since the early 90s, that second solution, haven't we? We've been rolling up debt and living quite comfortably. Now this is for Australia. You see similar things in the United States and Europe and all the other places. But all through this time, people you know, in the world who are making more money than they need to, in that they can live quite comfortably. And I've got no problems with people living comfortably. Uh, when they are in positions of, of importance in the community, but their income, <coughs> a big chunk of it, was simply you know, used for investment and in a very large part of it, intergenerational savings, we call it. They being transferred into the lower income side and once that has kind of fallen, um, you end up not just with the, the economy levelling out, but you see, even if this was to level out, that would still mean a recession for Australia, possibly a depression, right? because of the way that, that the fundamentals are kind of wrong. OK. What are the solutions then? Well, there's actually two, well, three, and they're all related to things which go back to St Thomas. The first is, that this
2: $5,000 we started off with, OK, it's a violation of this just price um,
1: idea. And the just price idea is I'm not forced to sell you the car for
0: $45,000. You are listening to Dr. Garrick Small discussing the topic Global Crisis Catholic Solution for Lumen Verum Apologetics on cradio.org.au. Okay,
1: I can still make a nice income by selling it to you for 40. I do that freely. I do that because you're my, mm, metaphorically, brother. Yeah? And that's the way that I would treat you if we were living in Fiji and we are both Fijians, or in many other cultures that are animated by the spirit. It's actually the same spirit that gave us price tags in Europe. You go to many parts of the world, you don't find price tags. And the reason is everything is negotiable and the rest of it. The European tradition, which is based on just price, was the idea that I worked out what I should be selling anybody in the community, which incidentally is the 40, and regardless if they're rich, poor or indifferent, that's what I sell them. So I can put the price on the good because the price belongs to the car or the, or the can of beer or the loaf of bread. Yeah? Doesn't matter if it's a king or whatever. Yeah. And if someone comes in and I feel particularly charitable, you know, and I, I sort of give them a loaf of bread for nothing because they look pretty poor, that's my benevolence, my liberality. It's a virtuous act, right? And no one stops me from doing that. But for everybody else, that's the cost. Now the odd thing about it is there's absolutely nothing stopping anyone from doing that. But it's the opposite of our business principles, you know, in our Western world today. The second relates to what happens when you've got more money than you need and if I lend and accept I expect a return a level of profit simply from lending we're not going to go into user now but what's that made of this thing here household debt why've got the household debt problem well it's unfortunate that people have to borrow to live. I think there is a good reason for people to lend out of you know, the, the gold under the bed that they're not using.
2: Yeah.
1: But to do it impersonally, merely for profit, can be shown to be pretty unhealthy morally. Councillor Council of Trent listed it as number one amongst the sins of theft. Um, usury isn't spoken about too much today. Some definitions of usury would say that the $5,000 up here is one species of usury. And another is the interest that I take on anything that I lend. Any type of place where I earn more income than I need to or I have a title to get a little bit technical over it. So there's the second. The third one, uh, how do I get around usury? I won't to go too far into usury, but I would say that in Australia at present, well, sort of over the last 20 years or so, out of the apparent interest cost that a borrower pays, probably about 2% is usury. So you might borrow for a house and you might have to pay 6 or 8% depending on where we are in the economic cycle. But out of that, amount, a fair bit of that 8% can be justified through various reasons, because of risk, because of uh, inflation, because of a number of things. But by the time you take off inflation, you take off risk, you take off a couple of other things. You end up with about 2%, which simply can't be justified anywhere. And that's this usury thing. What's the solution there? Okay. Where does the interest rate come from? Okay. What sets interest rate? And the average person who's done a little bit of economics or gone to business school, will say, so, oh, supply and demand for funds. Yeah, that's true. What well, does supply and demand for funds tell you? Well, not very much. Okay. It means that some people are in the habit of supplying funds and they like 8%, and some people are in the habit of borrowing money and they demand, or like, they have a need for funds, and they're in the habit of paying 8%. And, um, I won't go too far in the theory of it, but the most convincing explanation for where the rate of interest is set ultimately can be shown to be purely a psychologically, psychological or a social process, not an economic one. The rate of interest is set exogenously to the economy, to use economic speak. Now, if the rate of interest that is prevalent in Australia or Japan or the United States is ultimately Something which is set psychologically, socially, maybe politically, that means that we can set a different number, and we've seen that. I find it kind of curious that, as you know, our late prime minister uh, kind of left, you know, the Reserve Bank was there to try and push the interest rates up, right? And within sort of, you know, well, certainly less than a year of, of the change of government, all of a sudden the best economy we've ever had suddenly become the worst economy we've had in a, in a generation. And the interest rates sort of suddenly fell by, oh, how much? A long way. Now, I think there are good reasons for that. But the long term is take the usury out of the equation. So drop the interest rates probably by about 2%. And again, we can probably put it sort of fine kind of tuning on that later on. But if you did that, you would end up taking out a lot of that cycle that we had. It was difficult. Now again, can we do that? Is it hard? Is it easy? Well, it's actually extraordinarily easy. We can do it. But, because we're in the habit of always going for the best interest rates and all the rest of it, and you're going to go home and say, well, it's small, it's talking about this, but, gee, I hope I can get a fixed deposit, you know, at the sweet rate, because we're kind of inculturated into it. We're in the habit of going for the high numbers, and so it's kind of actually difficult for someone to actually lend at this lower rate. But it comes down to a sense of solidarity, saying I'm going to lend, if I'm going to lend, I'm going to actually treat someone in justice, but it's going to be an example of a gift, which is where we came into the story. The third is property. All those investment properties that people bought, especially after the last decade or so. Mm -hmm. And they're all there buying with the intention of having the rent go as high as they can so they can be successful as real estate, you know, big time. Now, again, that's kind of curious. Because if you wind back and think about what it means, it means that if I own an investment property, and let's also, if I own we're, say, the average property investor, we each own eight properties, it probably means about 30 or 40 people are going to be paying the top dollars is to make us wealthy for no particular reason hopefully they get all this capital gain and all the rest of it. We're actually in the habit of this capital gain that was a novelty in the 1970s whereas in our part of history we consider it as the norm.
2: Yeah?
1: I don't want to go in that tonight because we're not enough time to go into the history of how property started to, to do those crazy things. But the idea of expecting high rates of, profit, uh, of, of return, high rates of capital gain,
2: and the mentality which says, hey, I'm going to be a landlord, I'm going to hope
1: that the interest of the rents are going to go up, what does that mean? It means that each one of my tenants is going to be paying more and more of their income, their household income, um, you know, into you know in my pocket because of anything I've done. Well, I might sort of paint the house every now and then and all the rest of it. But in fact, the lion's share of what makes the rents go up has got nothing to do with how you keep the house. It's simply because the price of land goes up there. I saw a graph, actually, it was defended by the, um, <coughs> the uh, chief economist Westpac where he, he looked at household affordability. And I can't remember how the graph went, but sort of something like that. And he said, well, the percentage of over their household income, which is what this graph was over time, let's say from 90, I don't know where it went, was simply going up. And you said, we've got difficulties with affordability now, but in fact, if you plot it over the long term, no worries. It just happens that people generally, over the last generation or two, have been paying greater and greater percentages of their household income as rent. That's an easy thing for an economist to say, especially one who is the Chief Economist for Westpac probably is earning income, that he doesn't have to worry about rent. But what it means for the rest of the community is that if you extrapolate that graph out, and I had occasion to do it with um, Bill Evans, uh, his numbers, it turned out by the time you get to the year 2100, which I won't be around for, but, you know, some of my grandchildren will, be. The average household in Australia will be spending ninety per cent of their household income on housing. I don't think that'll be a very nice world to live in, unless you're a landlord. But I suspect that's kind of where our community is kind of working. And as I say, down here in two thousand ten, or two thousand and eight, I think was when you know West were making these recommendations and say, Oh that's all fine, and we should be happy with that. Are actually pointing the world, which I think is kind of, you know, particularly inhuman. Okay. That's the third of St Thomas's major economic principles, and I won't go into the appropriate pricing for property. But property in Catholic tradition should be private ownership with common use. This notion that it should leave something for the next guy, especially if you're tenant. And again, it comes back to this notion of solidarity and gift. Now, what have we got there? Look at the idea of a just price. No one's forcing me with my Holden dealership to charge you that extra price. No? But culturally, it's kind of hard for me to make that change. And I'm not talking about people not being able to feed their kids as a result of making these, these, these changes. It's simply a matter of treating the other in the relationship in commerce as a human being. When we take it to usury... It's pretty much the same thing because really that 5,000 there is a form of usury. And we're talking about property, we're talking about, by all means, buy property. And if you're in a position where you can, you know, uh, buy a of property, uh, hopefully over the 13th in Rerum Navarum, recommended owning property. Now he was only owning property in the idea of people owning their own property in their own shop and their own house. But even if you own an investment property, and there's reasons for that, don't have it with a goal of maximum rent and maximum capital gain, which I don't think our property economists, and I'm one, have really got a head around how to do that. But the point about it is that we don't need to be all the time sort of pushing forward with these prices, because one way or another with property, what it's always doing is competing ultimately with wages, and it's causing the percentage of our wages, which is going into our real estate costs, To be becoming impossible as a percentage of our wages, right? G.K. Chesterton said that, and he was he was a bit cross about um, big shops. He didn't like you know the Myers and the David Jones and all. I don't think he would have liked Westfield at all. And he said the way to avoid big shops is to avoid big shops. Now only Chesterton could sort of say something like that. But what he meant was. Then if you're going to be grumbling about sort of how Bunnings is kind of wiping out the local hardware store, what do you do? You shop at the local hardware store. No one's forcing you to shop at Bunnings, are they? But amongst sort of blokes who fix things around here, how many people shop at Bunnings? Yeah. There is a cultural inclination for us to want the best price and rip off the other guy and all the rest of it. But no one's forcing us to do this stuff. And in fact, you know the Bunnings, and I don't want to pick on Bunnings, but you know shops like that. what well, in the trade, in, in in property economics, we refer to them as category killers. Harris Farms, another category killer. Get Harris Farm in town, and what does that do to, the, to to anyone who's selling fruit and veggies around the place? Killed off. And that's the kind of world we're we're, we're moving into. If you want to buy a cup of coffee, Gloria Jeans, category killer. No, okay, they're competing with a couple of others. But it's still that idea that we're now kind of working to the point where we're getting a very small number of very large organisations that are all working on the basis of maximising this stuff. There are a score of genes kind of selling in coffee for a little bit more than they really need to. Uh, and there are kind of other elements in there. Okay. Um, but ultimately, it, it's kind of really self, well, it's, it's self-destructive. Okay. I um, won't be able to go into the fine detail of where you find that in um, Caritas and Viratati. Um I, I see it nicely kind of outlined in a lot of the recommendations. Now, the encyclical is primarily aimed at the question of development. And so the Holy Father is getting us to use this kind of a lens, gift, solidarity, and a number of other terms I haven't had a chance to, to go over tonight, with the question between rich countries and poor countries. But really, that's just like a, a blown up version of the uh, question between high-income individuals and low-income individuals in a particular economy, right? so I kind of, I like to apply <coughs> teritas and veritati um, domestically, um, but I think the same you know is applicable internationally, and I think that's the kind of the real problem <coughs> that Old father is seeing. OK, I think I might finish there. We might sort of just move to questions now. I was asked to talk a little bit more about the realities of where the um, current economy is going. So I'll, I'll get to that in questions, if you like. Um, but we might just leave it there in terms of theory. Okay. Any questions? I've got one, actually.
2: Um, so
1: do you think, with education, Normally, the pay goes up as well. So, you get a bachelor's degree, you get a certain amount of money, you get a master's, you get a PhD, etc. Do you think
0: there's going to be a point where everyone's going to become educated and all start earning higher incomes? Because that tends to what's happened during a global financial crisis everyone shifts back to education.
1: Yep. I've I've seen a lot of people um, doing that. And I remember seeing it last time, you know, in the early 90s. Uh, People lost their jobs, so they went back and did a master's or something. There's an element of that. Education is a big issue. I think there's kind of healthy education. The Chinese had a goal of having um, the highest per capita number of engineers in the world. That's one of their educational goals. That's kind of interesting because their goal isn't to have the highest number of business graduates. But if you think through what's going to help your, 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 your country more. Having lots of business people buying and selling and ripping each other off versus having more engineers and scientists, right? And today you can get in engineering degrees for fairly ordinary kind of entry levels. Because we put business and finance and banking up here and you know, engineering and science down there somewhere. And another day I'll sort of talk about the way that I I think that sort of goes right down to primary school. So education is a big issue. I think that when you live in a society that violates just price systematically, your education focus moves towards business and away from engineering and science. Because your, your, your uh, the, the, the ticket incomes doesn't come from being clever and inventing stuff, it comes from being able to talk people into spending more than they need to. Yeah? And that's kind of where you get your, your, your smarts in, in a marketing degree. Yeah? Um, I don't think it's quite your, your, your question there, because your, your question was more, you know, in this period, are we moving in? Well, in a sense, you see, that's a form of investment. And it's a form of productive investment. One of the other little issues, uh, and it's something which um, comes out um, in the thinking of um, a chap from the United States called the is the distinction between the, um, the physical economy and the financial economy. Now, what Roche would say is that in times like this, we ought to be investing in, in, in productive economy, our, our physical economy. So we should be building infrastructure. Education is a form of personal infrastructure. Yeah, it's something that you do that, that gives you the wherewithal to do something else better. In the same way as building a road, Gives you the wherewithal to transport things and connect people together better, right? And that's the sort of stuff that we should be operating, looking at, at, at developing. So we should be pouring our money into building factories, building roads, building internet connections, uh, building education, healthy education, and avoid financial investment. The 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 financial economy is what sort of pulls you now. The financial economy is what this cycle is all about, by the way. Now. Our problem is that when we think about in, in, in investment, one of the things I find kind of curious is that um, over the last maybe 20 years, our communities, like all Western communities, have been sort of refocused away from the physical production into the financial. Turn on the radio when you're going to get a finance report. Is the finance report telling you? You know how many machines are, are, are being built? Sort of what the latest sort of um, you know technological developments are? No, it's where the the, the the share price is going. And when you go along and buy a share, if I go along and buy a BHP share or a share in Rio Tinto or what have you, I'm buying a share from somebody else for probably more private money than they paid for it. And the money that I buy that share with does not help BHP or Rio Tino or anyone else. One zot. Helps the person who sold it to me. Yeah. If I want BHP to have a bigger mind, be able to employ more people, I should go along with BHP and buy a share straight from the company. That's called the, um, you know, the, the primary market, straight from the company. But very, very little investment in, in 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 shares actually is primary. Actually builds the company up. Most of this is recirculating um, investments in a, What we Sometimes called the secondary market, the financial economy, and that's all the stuff which is the circulation of, of that. Right? And so, and that's another point that we can kind of move to. You see, that five thousand dollars ultimately becomes the capital gain, the increase in the share price of you know small distributing company, right? And that then kind of rattles through, you know, into the finance market, into the stock exchange. Uh, and that causes lots of problems. But, but now education is um, education is good, but it but needs to be kind of directed. Um, but in the same way that, that any other, you know, physical investment is.
2: Um, just sort of reflecting on what you've said, I sort of think to, you know the uh, environment in America where you sort of seem to have uh, Christian business people that respond to this whole situation with, so example, being excellent businessmen. Making...
0: You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Dr. Garrick Small on the topic Global Crisis Catholic Solution. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.